This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, clinical neuropsychologist Mario Martinez is joined by CIIS's Natalie Metz to discuss his research on aging and longevity. This event was recorded on October 26, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcasts. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. being with us and thank you to CIIS for this opportunity to host Mario this evening and thank you Mario for your time. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Yeah. So I would love to just hear a bit about how you came into this work, how you got onto this path. Um, Mostly out of frustration about how uh, some things don't work well in science and trying to find out why they don't work well. And uh, mainly uh, the concept of uh, medicine. Medicine is outstanding in, in biomechanics. Anything that's going on biomechanically, you have answers. But we're much more than biomechanic. We're biosymbolic. And when it gets to that level, then medicine doesn't really have much to offer. Not just medicine, but general science. Um, and I guess the best way to describe it is that when... Um, we're 150,000 years old, our Homo sapiens, and we're not Neanderthals. We're Cro-Magnons, so it's good to remember that. Um, so um, we've had 150,000 years of trial and error, and the immune system has been developing and developing. We uh, a million years ago we didn't have T cells, and we have T cells now, so it's constantly developing. But what's happened is that uh, animals have really good epigenetics. They can transfer information from from one generation to another. Uh, rats, if you give them poison and then they, they groom, um, they uh, will communicate that they shouldn't eat that poison, but they also, the offsprings won't eat the poison. So that's a, 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 an epigenetic uh, transfer. We lost that with language, because in language you can say, don't eat that because it's poisonous. But what happened is that in order to compensate for that, the immune system had to become biosymbolic. It had to also respond to thoughts uh, or expressions. For example, um, if you say to somebody, you're an idiot, what's wrong with you? You shame somebody, that's a, that's a word, it's biosymbolic, but the immune system will secrete molecules of inflammation like uh, tumor necrosis factor and inter- interleukins. So it's a, it's a biosymbolic system. Now, so what that means is that whatever we say, whatever we do, is not just biochemistry, but it's biosymbolic processing. So that was one of the reasons why I uh, got into this weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's only so strange here at CIIS. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's, it's, it's common here. I'm glad to, to hear that. You're outliers. <laughs> <laughs> so neuropsychology. Neuropsychology, <clears throat> I was trained in neuropsychology, and in neuropsychology you learn the brain, and you learn the pathology of the brain. When this doesn't work, what do you do? 
and what is the limitation when you have a particular uh, trauma to a part of the brain. But it doesn't really tell you much about what the brain does when the brain is, is uh, healthy and what are the parameters of uh, the opportunity for the brain to do things that we don't know anything about. So there I was very frustrated again, and uh, I was fortunate to have a really good mentor, uh, George Solomon, who was the founder of uh, created uh, psychoneuroimmunology. <clears throat> and George Solomon uh, was a, a research professor at, uh, at UCLA, and again, he challenged science. And at the time in the 60s, he thought that, uh, that women, uh, who, and mostly women, uh, it's more women than men, have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. He thought that the rheumatoid factor was really not the determinant of, of rheumatoid arthritis. And he started looking into it. And he started looking at twins and siblings and different people. And he found that some that had the rheumatoid factor did not, did not develop rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, some that didn't have it developed it. So that was one of the components. And then he studied uh, uh, siblings, especially and, and um, twins, to, to look at their genetic uh, similarity. <clears throat> and, and I'll tell you uh, uh, two sisters that he studied that pretty much represent the, uh, the uh, sample that he studied. Both of them uh, had been sexually abused by the father, uh, I haven't seen a case of, um, of rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia that doesn't have some kind of shaming trauma. Um, so at the time, he was very interested in that. So he found that they both had the rheumatoid factor. One developed the rheumatoid arthritis with, with very um, damaging effects, uh, all the things that happened with the uh, um, autoimmune destruction, and, and the other one didn't. The other one was an athlete. They were in their 40s. And she had no symptoms. She was fine. So he asked uh, the one who had the symptoms, How, what is your relationship with your father? And she said, uh, well, he's still alive, and, and I go see him, uh, and, and he, I feel really sorry for him. And he tells me that he, he'll ask me to tell him that I love him, and I do, and then I get really, really bad symptoms and I go to my rheumatologist and he says well that's just stress because you're feeling sorry for your dad when you see somebody saying it's stress they don't know what they're talking about when they say it's genes or stress they don't know what what to tell you so the other one he asked her the same thing what what uh, what's your relationship with your father and she said uh, I can't wait for him to die so I can spit on his grave now we know that's righteous anger which is one of the causes of health Righteous anger within a context, when, when innocence is abused and you protect it, it's good for the immune system. But if you take it out of context and it becomes chronic, it's bad for the immune system. So, so he came up with the word um, righteous anger. He didn't know at the time that all these things that we know now, that there's immunological responses that are coming out the, of uh, inflammation. Inflammation is related to everything from cancer to, to depression. It's not serotonin. It's really um, the, uh, the inflammation. So that's how he started. And uh, he called it psychoimmunology at the time. Uh, and he almost lost all his grants. And they, because when you, know, when you come up with a new theory, uh, disdain is a first step. Uh, when Galileo said that the, world, that the uh, earth was the center, it's not the center of the universe, they, they disdained him. Uh, and um, then after that, it became skepticism. And finally, you accept it. So 10 years later, Ader, Bob Ader, found that not only the, the immune system is responding to 
psychological processes, but also the nervous system. So they called it psychoneuroimmunology. Then um, a, um, uh, um, an Argentinian um, found that the endocrine system is also related, so they call it psychoneuroendocrinology. And it was like the, you know, the Frankenstein effect. Uh, um, so I called George one day, and I said, look, I got the word for it. And he said, how long is it? So I said, so no, it's biocognition. And he said, oh, not bad. For him to say not bad, that meant brilliant, but, you know, not bad. So, <laughs> so what I'm doing now is uh, uh, moving the next step, which is cultural psychoneuroimmunology, which is bringing the cultural components of the mind-body connection. So that's really where I am now. Thank you for that. Yeah, it seems like how can we consider what's happening on the individual level without the cultural context? Yes, yes. It's an incomplete picture. It is, exactly. And the way to look at it, the way I'd like to take complex things and really simplify them, the way to look at it is you look at culture. Anthropologists fight over culture and what it is, and I call it very simply the collective beliefs about things that are really important, ethics, aesthetics, wellness, longevity. Uh, and uh, as you and I were talking about earlier, the culture, the brain is cultural, and I'll explain why, and, and I hope that I can convince you that the brain is completely cultural. Uh, but uh, look at the world as, a, as an infinite possibility of being interpreted. And the culture is the fabric that, that, that it builds around the world, and then you respond to the fabric, and that's the cultural perception. Uh, and then your biology, your immunology, your endocrinology will respond to that based on the culture beliefs that you have from early in life. Um, so, um, so then the cultural psychoneuroimmunology, because psychoneuroimmunology has become very uh, reductionistic, unfortunately. Sometimes they study the T cell or they study rats. And rats are important to study, but rats don't know that they're mortal and they don't know meaning two important concepts of health. So if you study rat, you're not studying psychoneuroimmunology, you're studying neuroendocrinology uh, instead of, there's no psychology there. But it's good. There's some good things that can be brought up, but, but it cannot be called psychoneuroimmunology in, in my view. Of course, uh, I'm not very popular with some, some of these organizations, but, uh, <laughs> but cultural psychoneuroimmunology is the next step, which is really looking at how can the culture contribute to how mind and body respond with each other. That's what my second book is about. The first book was about how the mind and the body communicate, and the mind-body self is how the mind and the body communicate within a cultural context. Yeah, yeah your first book was called The Mind-Body Code. The Mind-Body Code, yeah. And you, if I have it correct, the mind-body code is the, the co-authoring, this co-authoring process. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you say a and, bit more about that? This yeah. The, uh, of mind and the body simplest and... way to look at it is there's a, there's a code for the brain and there's a code for cognition. The brain has a code uh, that whatever you repeat, the brain interprets it as this is important for preservation. And it creates neuromaps and the neuromaps grow. So anything that you repeat, good or bad, it, it considers it uh, preservation. Cognition will then reason out the repetitions. So for example, if I have a concept of the world as being dirty, I'll see all the little dirty things in the world to confirm it, and then cognition will say, you see? Yeah, you're right. The brain is right. There's dirt there, and there's dirt there. So selective perception. Uh, if you want to buy an Omega watch, you'll see them everywhere. 
Uh, if you don't want to buy an Omega watch, you'll go through the blind uh, spot and you won't see Omega watches. So our perception is very selective. So what you want to do is you want to be able to ask yourself, what is the selectivity that I have? What am I looking for in the world? And what am I confirming? But you're confirming what your, what your brain is already selectively looking for. Uh, so the mind-body code is about that. It's about the uh, repetition and, and how to actually break those processes. And the other thing that I found is that the brain doesn't really uh, change the maps in, um, intellectually only. You can't say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. It doesn't work. You can say it a thousand times and it doesn't work. Because what you learned about being a good or a bad person is a cluster of emotions, uh, psychoneurominology, and you can't just intellectually cut out the whole cluster by saying, I'm a good person, because your body won't buy it. Your immune system won't buy it. You have to look for evidence. And that's what I'm going to be doing in the workshops, giving actual um, uh, techniques on how to experientially change um, the affirmations and things that you make about yourself. So actually to change the, the default mode. In, in psychology, we call it the default mode. And this is why, for example, and I'll explain it in a minute, but for example, you might meditate and you go into a very deep level of meditation. You come out and you get uptight again. And the reason is that you have what's called the default mode in the brain. The default, mo- the default mode will actually is the operating consciousness that you have. So when everything settles or when everything goes back to normal, that's the consciousness that you, that you, that you will be responding to. So you could meditate, you could do this, you could do that, but that's the consciousness. So in biocognition, we try to change the operative consciousness, not the behavior. You change the behavior, you'll have something else to overcome the behavior. So you have to change the operative consciousness. And it has to be done experientially with contemplative methods. So, But other than that, that's it. <laughs> if you got it, you don't need anything else. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting what you're saying about selective perception. You know, it's like we perceive what we perhaps want to reinforce. And yes. so how can we be, bring mindfulness and awareness to that process and then employ some methods to shift that? Because sometimes we're caught in a trap or a loop of perceiving something that is detrimental yes. and not serving us. Yes. And we're the only animal that, uh, that works, that our intelligence works against us. Uh, uh, Sapolsky, who's a, a, bi- a brilliant biologist, he wrote a book, Why Zebras Don't Have uh, Ulcers. And the reason is that when the zebras are over the uh, danger, that's it. They go back to eating, and we ruminate about it for days. Not only somebody gets in front of you in, in, in traffic, you get upset, cortisol goes up, uh, and uh, all the hormones go up. Uh, and not only do you not finish it, but as soon as you get to work, guess what happened to me? And you engage in toxicity. So the, uh, the norepinephrine and the epinephrine and everything's there all day. Zebras don't do that. It's over. It's over. So, um, so one of the things we can do is we can ask ourselves, what are we ruminating that is not um, in our best interest? And when we ruminate, uh, embodiment is really important in biocognition. Embodiment means to be aware of what it's doing to your body. So let's say it's over. Uh, somebody gets in front of you and you call them an idiot and all that kind of thing. You do all that righteous anger. Okay, then you're done. You take a deep breath. And you say, okay, what is this doing to me? You find out where it's manifesting in your body. And that, after it's manifesting in your body, you can say, okay, I have a choice. Because freedom theory is really important. I have a choice. I want to toxify myself for the rest of the day. 
or I want to make some changes. If you want to toxify, go for it. But if you don't, then the change you want to make is to ask yourself, how am I judging this person? I'm judging this person from perfection. I'm perfect. This person is not. Uh, I am buying into the archetypes that I learned that, that the world is, is dangerous. So I'm going to confirm that. And then, then there's some techniques that you can do that, you know, that I'll be explaining in the, in, in the workshop. But basically, you become aware. You become Ellen Langer, uh, who's a colleague at Harvard. She says that 99% of our problems are mindlessness. And examples of mindlessness are when you're uh, rushing and you're at the elevator and you push the button and the light goes on and you keep pushing it to see if it gets there faster. <laughs> That's mindlessness. <laughs> And she's done some, she's really great. She's done some great experiments at, at Harvard. Uh, she did one where um, uh, this person uh, was uh, painting that she was, uh, that she was, she had a, uh, she cut herself. There was, of course, fake blood. And it was at, at a pharmacy, right next to a pharmacy. And the Confederates, the people who were part of the experiment, uh, were all aware of this. So um, the, somebody comes up to, to her and she says, Can I help? He says, Yes, yes, please get me a band aid. Give me a, a Johnson and Johnson band aid. So she goes to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist, of course, and part of it's part of the experiment. And she says, "There's a lady there who's bleeding, and she needs a, a Johnson and Johnson band aid." She says, "No, we don't have Johnson and Johnson. We have another another brand." Oh, I'm sorry. So she goes back to her. <laughs> they don't have Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> Mindlessness, <laughs> and, and the many many uh, studies that she's done with that, uh, but. <laughs> um, but she's done a lot of work in, in how context affects aging, which aging is really an important component for me, how we process time and, and how centenarians process time. A lot of studies that I've done with people who are over 100. And she finds that uh, illnesses, for example, she's worked with diabetes type 1, type 2, cancer. It's not static. The environment, she can show you that if you're a diabetes type 2 or type 1, the context will determine how much insulin you need. And uh, so the context, then you begin to replicate what you're doing in that context. Chronic pain, the same thing. Chronic pain is contextual. Everything's contextual. I was working with a patient who uh, had chronic pain, and I had her record from 1 to 10 what we call the subjective units of pain. 10 is the worst pain you've ever had, and 1 is nothing. Record the context and the uh, number of uh, subjective units of pain and what's going on. So after, And by the way, just by recording, your pain will go down 20% just by recording because you become aware and it's a distraction and it has but she, she said okay look let's hear uh, eight I was talking to my husband and we were talking about finances okay um, two I was reading a book nine I was talking to my husband and so <laughs> she said ooh there's some uh, correlation here between my husband and my chronic pain <laughs> so, and it's not that simple. I'm oversimplifying, but, but those are the components that you can begin to work with. Empowerment is really important in healing. You never give your healing to anybody. You do it yourself with the help of professionals, I think. Could it be said, then, that experiences of chronic pain or any form of chronicity illness-wise is essentially the body ruminating in a way? Yes, and giving you a signal that something's not working well. Uh, and and that uh, uh, if you for, let, let's say for example let's say ty- diabetes type two okay uh, any illness is not a, a genetic sentencing an illness a family illness is a myth there's no such thing it's a propensity 
a propensity for illness to be expressed based on the live, life that you live. And reductionists will say, but look, the brother has it, the sister has it, it's genetic. No, the brother and the sister live in the same environment, they eat the same food, and they think the same thing. So they trigger the predisposition for, for um, diabetes type 2. But uh, let's say that you have uh, that propensity, and you go to a reductionist professional and say, well, look, you're going to have diabetes because you're your family. What, what does that do? Number one, you go into helplessness, which cause, causes uh, immunological helplessness. Immunological helplessness will block any gene expression toward health. Second, uh, you don't worry about what you eat or anything because eventually you're going to become a, a diabetic. So you give up. Third, uh, you see yourself as already in that situation and the attributions you give to things, which is really important, uh, will then confirm the illness and make the illness, the illness worse. All those things are working together. They're nocebos. We're in placebos I shall heal, nocebo I shall harm. Uh, they're nocebo effects. I, I know of a, neuro, a, a neurologist uh, who shouldn't be practicing, but he's practicing. And, and he had a woman who uh, was diagnosed with MS, and he brought a wheelchair, and he said, look, look at that wheelchair, because you're going to be in it and get used to it. It's a, it's a beast. It's a, an idiot. Uh, that's not what you're doing. He's sentencing the person to do that. Uh, because um, what I call culture editors are people that, that the culture gives them a lot of power, nocebo or placebo. And those culture editors can really make some really good changes in your life or bad changes in your life. And we're predisposed to pay attention to the culture editors. The first one we have is the mother or the, or the breast or the, or, or the bottle. So we're predisposed for that. And we're predisposed to pay much attention to that. Not only our thoughts, but our, our biology will pay attention to that. When they tell you you have six months to live, uh, that's, that's, that's preposterous to say that. Six months to live is an average. Uh, science works on averages. Analysis of variance, which is a, a difference between averages, but not the individual. So the ethical way to do it is if you, you have the normal curve, and you have on the average, you have people that live six weeks. On the left side of the uh, tail, you have people that live six weeks uh, or four days, and p- people that live 10 years. So what you need to say as a professional is, look, this is, on the average, people live six months, but there are people here that are outliers that live 10 years, so let's find out how they live to see how they can make some changes in, in, the, in the genetic sentencing. That's the ethical way to do it, I think. And, and it allows people to have hope, which is very important in the healing process. Beautifully said. Thank you. Beautifully said. When I was a, a early medical student with lots of brightness in my eyes before I got really tired, I remember thinking about, this is really kind of a sick part of the practice of mainstream medicine is this sentencing through you have x amount of time to live what you know what is that planting in people's consciousness and it brings about some a quote i wrote down from your book where you, um, in the topic of causes of health you said rather than mechanical products of our genes we are the co-authors of their expression and rather than thinking like there's a sentencing there's a something that's innately laid out in a blueprint we're really co-authoring the manifestation so then, and one to I think a simplified uh, term for that would be the nature versus nurture thing, but it's beyond that. It's yes. really beyond nature versus nurture. Yes, it is. Uh, look how powerful the <clears throat> the cultural editors are. Uh, these are studies 
because biocognition is based on bringing different disciplines together from studies, not just something that I invented. Um, some studies have looked at uh, giving somebody some saline, which is inert, doesn't do anything, and they tell them, we're going to give you an, an injection here that's going to constrict your bronchioles, and 60% of the people will have bronchial constriction. Then they have another group, they say, we're going we're to dilate your bronchioles, and the bronchioles will dilate. But even more than that, they'll give a bronchial constrictor, a chemical, and they'll say, this is a, a, a dilator. And 60% of the, of the people bypass the biochemistry and they dilate their bronchioles. <laughs> so is it biochemistry or, or is it biosymbolic? <clears throat> both and, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. It's both, <laughs> exactly. Co-author, as you said, yeah. yeah. So how, how can people help themselves in regards to perhaps being more empowered co-authors of their experience? First, to be aware of the power that you have that has been taken away from you by cultures. Uh, the cultures are basically uh, collectivists. And you need to be a co- in a collective because if you're a child, you die if you don't have, a, if you don't have the collective uh, people taking care of you. But you get to a point you, where you have to, what Jung called, uh, individuate. And you have to go and do things that are not compatible with the, with the, with the uh, culture or with the tribe. And the, when you come out of that tribe, you're going to be wounded in what I call archetypal wounds three ways. You're going to either be abandoned, you're going to be betrayed, or you're going to be shamed. That's the, that's the price of the outlier. So you be aware that that's what you, you, you have to deal with. Uh, but when you come out, then you have to find subcultures of wellness that support your belief systems. Uh, so let's say that you're 45 and, and, and your culture 45 is middle age uh, and uh, uh, then you tell somebody that you want to go back to school and immediately the, the, the voice changes and and very admonishing and almost uh, uh, in a very uh, mystical negative way they say well no you shouldn't be doing that you need to consider that you're middle aged now and you have to uh, think about uh, retirement, and when you hit middle age, if you don't, if you're not careful, you start looking middle age, dressing middle age, and getting sick like the middle age, because those are the portals: the portal of middle age, the portal. Of, and centenarians don't have portals. When I asked the centenarian, "What's middle age?" and he said, "That's stupid. You find out when you die. There's no such thing." <laughs> <laughs> so, another one: a hundred and two-year-old uh, woman. Um, I said, when was the last time you went to the doctor? She said, oh, about 70 years ago, I had a fracture. Really? Why don't you go back to the doctor? Why? I'm okay. So what do your doctors have to say? And she said, I don't know. They're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, those are outliers. Those are the people that, that do things. Uh, uh, so, what the, so getting back to your question, what you have to do is become aware that you're being constrained by a culture where it no longer serves you well. And you have to come out, pay the price, and there are antidotes for each of the wounds. But especially be around other outliers when you say, look, I'm 45 and I, w- I want to go back to school. And say, really, what do you want to major in? That's what you need. I talked to a 103-year-old centenarian, and I said, so what are your plans? And he said, I'm going to start learning German next month. They know how to set limits, which is another one of the causes of health. I had to ask another one. Um, I said, can we get together Saturday? And he said, yeah, sure. Um, here's how setting limits and not being a caretaker uh, and I said yeah great so um, how about 9 o'clock in the morning 
They said, no, nine o'clock I have tango lessons. I can't do it. <laughs> they, 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 they respect themselves. And if there's an emergency, they act on it. But they respect themselves. They're not caretakers, which is one of the causes of illness. Cancer, the C, C personality, C doesn't stand for cancer. It's ABC type of personality. Um, propensity for cancer, if you have a, a gene propensity for cancer, you're a caretaker, you're afraid of upsetting other people, you want to keep everybody happy, uh, you're afraid of the world, you're afraid of taking chances, you live with a very compromised immune system. And the immune system is constantly killing, uh, killing um, um, precancer cells, the, the uh, um, natural killer cells and, and others are constantly killing precancer cells. But when you go into immune helplessness, the NK population goes down and it becomes less efficient in fighting precancer cells. So it's not just in your head. It's a biochemistry going on there. It's an interplay between, it's yes. a conversation. Yes. Yeah, you can't separate. That's right. Them. Inseparable. Yeah. Inseparable. And then what, what layer is being perhaps imposed or offered or... Maybe shoved in your face at times uh, yes. from the culture. That's right. And what happens when you move to a place and you're immersed in a different culture? What happens then? Well, the, the good thing about it is that the people that don't know you don't have any expectations of you. If now you shaved your head, you go to your friends and say, "What have you done? Are you crazy?" But you meet somebody new and say, "How are you doing?" They they accept you because they have no preconceptions of you. So new cultures is a good opportunity to create new rituals, which is another cost of health that I'll be talking about in, 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 uh, later. Um, the rituals are really, really important. The rituals are the things that, that is a terrain for health. So you're creating new rituals with, uh, with subcultures, and you can create whatever ritual you want uh, to present yourself in any way you want, and, and then begin to defy the, um, uh, the admonitions and the sentencing that, that, that you were given by your culture. For example, they tell you you're not good with directions. Uh, you, you've never been, your brother is good with directions, but you're not. So then that coming from a culture editor, a mother, a father, whatever, then your neuromaps will look for your ways of confirming that you're not good with directions. But if you're good with direction one day, you'll say, oh, that's just lucky. But then you say, I want to I wanna question that, just like I question, like you question things in science, and you say, no, I don't want to buy that. And you question whether you're really bad with directions. And then you begin to create evidence to create new neuromaps maps and do things that confirm that you're good with directions. But at first, you're going to feel some anxiety because the anxiety says, uh, the consciousness says you're bad with directions. If you're good with directions, you're creating anxiety. You're creating this, this uh, disturbance here. So I'm good with directions. You're going to feel anxiety. You breathe and see it as a cloud passing. Always see it as a cloud passing and then say, okay, I'm going to look for evidence. You keep looking for evidence. The neural maps of the old stuff begin to weaken, and the others begin to strengthen, and they go deeper and deeper. And after a while, you're good with direction, but never discuss it with the ones that told you that you're not good with directions. You have to be strong enough before you go to your culture editors. Uh, if uh, they say you're bad with directions, then yeah, you're right, and then laugh and know that you're not. Don't fight it, because they're stronger than you are. They had more of more space and toxicity than you do, so they, they, don't, uh, they don't help you much. And they're not bad. It's just what they learn. It's just how they are. 
I wonder if this is uh, an opportunity to talk a little bit about the anthropology of self-esteem. Oh, okay, yes. Um, I, I bring, what, what I'm doing with biocognition is I bring psychoneurominology, culture psychoneurology, anthropology, uh, cultural anthropology, cultural neuroscience, which actually studies how the brain responds to culture, and of course, um, psychology, a little bit of psychology there. Um, and the, um, the anthropology of self-esteem, self-esteem is an American invention. It's an it's a psych- American psychology invention. You don't see it in other, in other cultures and other psychologies. For example, Eastern psychology, uh, Indian psychology, you don't see self-esteem. But anyway, it's a good concept because it really looks at your evaluation. But the anthropology of it is that uh, your culture will te- teach you three ingredients of how to evaluate yourself or how to value or, or confirm your, your worthiness. And one is what I call the valuation self-esteem. And that's the one that says, um, I am valuable enough to be able to accept good things without getting sick or without getting toxic. Because if you don't have that, you get sick or you get... It's like uh, looking at a, a lion in front of you if something good happens to you. That's valuation self-esteem. And, and I'll tell you how you can bring it up and down. It's really easy once you have the tools. The second one is competence self-esteem. Your culture will tell you what is competence and competence will be how good are you at what you do as a father, as a mother, as a carpenter, as a whatever. And that's what determines your competent self-esteem. And this is why sometimes you'll see an executive who runs a multi-billion dollar company, high competent self-esteem, and gets home, gets home and uh, partner uh, beats him up or beats her up emotionally and doesn't know how to deal with it because they have low uh, valuation self-esteem and high competent self-esteem. So that's the second. And the third is a culture will tell you how to create uh, affiliation self-esteem, which is the people that are valuable in your life so you can share good things with them. So you have competence, you have uh, valuation, and then you have affiliation. But the way to change that is really easy um, if you have the tools. And the tools are, for example, ask yourself when you leave here, which is my highest self-esteem? Because psychology, they don't study that affiliation, self-esteem, or even competence. It's all valuation. Uh, what is the highest for me? Is it competence? Is it valuation? Or is it affiliation? The way to bring up valuation, self-esteem, is that you make self-caring commitments and you keep them. It goes down if you break self-caring commitments. And an example would be, say you have a friend that doesn't keep up with their agreements with you, who says, let's get together for lunch, and they don't. What is the value? How does the value go? It goes down, right? Well, that's what you do to yourself. So it goes up with keeping self-caring commitments. Even the simplest goes up. If you break them, it goes down. Competence, you have to go into novelty learning. The more you learn, the more you're in competence, uh, self-esteem. The more stagnant you are, the more competence, self-esteem goes down. So whatever you do, Learn more of what you do. Become better at what you do. Uh, read articles. Talk to people that are better than you. I always like to talk to people that know more than I do um, so I can learn. Another cause of health, curiosity. Curiosity is one of the causes of health and relates to time, and that's what I'll talk uh, Saturday and Sunday. But um, uh, So that's how you bring it up and how you bring it down. Affiliation, which is really interesting, it goes up when you are with selective people that support your value, 
that admire you and then you can admire back. And you don't need a lot of those people, just a few. It goes down with the level of toxic people you associate with. So you can bring it up or down, all three of them. But you see that if you have the tools, how it's easy. And you make commitments and, and you, you'll find that, that your operating consciousness will change when you start doing these things. Because you're confirming things that change the selective perception that you have. Beautiful. I really enjoyed reading that part of the book. And um, I found that it kind of woven well um, for me in my mind about talking about these archetypal wounds that you touched on before around shame and abandonment and betrayal. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to those wounds and how what the I think you said maybe use the word antidotes or yes. maybe remedies. To yes. those. Uh, yeah. What I found is that the first one that, that was studied was uh, with George Solomon and some of his uh, students uh, was shame. We know that shame causes uh, inflammation. But it's very interesting. The first study that was done with that, you know, th- there's a great interest in, in stress, 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 stress. Stress is, not, stress is overrated. Um, it's not stress. So what they did is they, for the first time, they looked at people. They, 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 did a, uh, they had groups where they had one group of people. They told them, for 15 minutes, write things that are shameful to you, things that you've done that are shameful. And another group writes something that's, that makes you feel guilty. And the other group was the, the control group, which is write about anything you want. And then they measured in the saliva uh, the, both uh, cortisol, a, a stress hormone, uh, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and they measured uh, tumor necrosis factor, which is a marker of, it's a molecule marker of inflammation. The first time that they've done that. So what they found was that uh, the, uh, the guilt had uh, stress hormones up, but no, uh, no inflammation. So they thought, well, see, so, uh, guilt is okay. It's not a problem. Uh, then they went to um, the shame, and they found that shame was not so much stress, but inflammation. And that's the first time that they found that inflammation is related to shame. And now... Uh, each of them has a psychoneurological profile. Shame is felt hot because it's inflammation. Uh, It causes inflammation, and the main emotion is tremendous embarrassment, a painful embarrassment. You want the the, the world to, to the, the earth to swallow you, shame. Abandonment is cold. You feel it cold. Uh, you learn it, and, and, and you learn patterns. Not if it happens once, you're very resilient, but if there's a pattern where mommy doesn't pick you up and all the, all the kids are there and the mommy's picked them up from kindergarten and there's not your mom and she's half hour late every day. Cold. And it's more like a norepinephrine, uh, a constriction of, the, of your vascular system. And betrayal, which is the, the most difficult to deal with, betrayal is hot. And betrayal, the main emotion, is anger because you've been tricked. And also you get a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of stress hormones, but they mostly affect the cardiovascular system. Um, so there are two that are hot and one that's cold. Shame and, and betrayal are hot. You actually feel it. And um, abandonment is cold. Now the antidotes for those, which are counter to the psychoterminology, are for, for shame, honor. Honor consciousness. For abandonment, commitment, consciousness, and for betrayal, loyalty, consciousness. 
and I've done work with uh, shame mainly, using it for um, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, some of the autoimmune illnesses that are inflammatory. Uh, and I've used honor consciousness, and it's a complicated process, but basically you teach honor consciousness, honor yourself, not others, and it has an anti-inflammatory component to it. And we're beginning to look into the actual immunology of it. Clinically, I've been able to show it, but immunologically, we're going to look at markers to see how, uh, how that uh, works as an anti-inflammatory. Uh, so each of them has a, a, an antidote, and the antidote has a psychoimmunological effect, just like it has in, in the negative, it can have one in the positive. So, so there's a good news. Uh, it's really good news. Yeah, it's really fascinating just to look at the, the scripts that we're running and how we can change those, and that affects the biology. And yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. When I think about, when I work with patients that have some of these chronic diseases and some of these autoimmune ones, I think, you know, what part of you is shaming, attacking, hurting yourself? Yes. And how can we get to the root of that? You know, there's herbs and there's cortisone and there's different types of remedies that can suppress the pathology or alter the physical pathology but really what's at the psycho-spiritual mental emotional root of this That's yes and if that doesn't change then it, it, it at all. I, I was work, i was doing some work with uh <clears throat> do some skype mentoring uh for this person from from china and she was a, a public speaker but she had problems because she would hyperventilate and she would speak fast and and she had speech uh, coaches and all that kind of thing. So we uh, said, look, you know the mechanics, but what's going on? Let's look at the culture. Asian culture, were you allowed to speak when you were a child? No, no. And if you had a chance to speak, did you have a lot of time? No. Because you want people to discover. You don't want to tell them this is what's going on. Um, you, when you discover, you own it, and you assimilate it a lot better. So I said, if you didn't have a lot of time, did you have to speak fast or slow? Oh, I had to speak fast. And how was your breathing? Oh, my God. And she got it. She got it. So then we started working on, on the shaming because it was shame. You, you don't speak. Uh, you only speak when you're spoken to, that kind of No amount of uh, therapy, of, of speech therapy or, or any kind, would work unless you deal with the biosymbolic component which changes that uh, operating consciousness that, that we were talking about. So that's an example of... Uh, but but illnesses also, it just reminds me, illnesses really have two components. They have a physiological component, of course, a genetic, environmental, nutritional, they're there. But they're, if you want to heal, not if you want to be cured, if you want to heal, you need to consider two components in addition to all the biomedicine, all the other things that you do, herbs, whatever. One, what is this illness taking you away from doing that you don't want to do? That's number one. And number two, which nobody looks at, what is it taking you away from you to do something that you don't feel worthy of? And that's a real important one. If you don't work those two out, it, it's very difficult to heal, in my opinion. Uh, and, and cultures give you a passport to be sick. Uh, if you say, no, uh, look, I, I'm going to take some time for myself. I can't go to the movies with you. Oh, come on. Do it some other time. But if you say you have a migraine, oh, sure. No, okay. Migraine is a passport. Never use an illness to say no. Even if you feel terrible, say, no, I don't want to do it. Why? I don't want to do it. I have some things to do. Even if you have a headache, headache, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you do, the brain is very smart. It will say, hmm, okay, I'll show you how to get away from things. I'm going to get you sick here and there. 
So it's very important that you, you assert yourself without illness. And then, and there are also some techniques that I'll, that I'll be talking about later, of how to, how to learn to come out of, of uh, uh, unworthiness. And, and I'll give you a simple ex- uh, an example. Very, uh, I think examples are the best way to learn something um, that I think, I think you and I had talked about it earlier. Um, this man is very successful. Um, he, he built uh, condominiums around lakes and became very, very wealthy. And then he liked to play Cuban drums. That was his, his uh, hobby. And then he comes to see me, and he's having arthritis in his left hand. And guess what? He can't play the Cuban drums. It wasn't his uh, right foot or it wasn't his knee. It was the, the joy component. So we look at it, and of course he was told by the rheumatologist, well, you know, look at your age. Or you're 65. What do you want? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, your father had it, so that kind of thing. So, uh, so we went to the wound, and he lived in a small town in, in up in New York, and his father was a town drunk. There's some shame right there. And his father, while he was drunk, uh, dared someone. Uh, he bet on that, that he could eat, he could eat uh, glass. So he died, had a you know, hemorrhaging. So they called him the, yeah, the, the, your dad uh, used to eat glass, and the shame. And he remembers when that first happened. So it didn't come till he was in a situation where he could actually enjoy and have a good life. Work. Okay, now everything's fine. When everything's fine, that's when you have to be careful. Joy is something that's very dangerous if your self-esteem is low. So joy is a dangerous emotion. You have to learn it. Uh, children don't learn. They're not, they're not born joyful. They, they're happy. Joy is a very evolved emotion. They're not, they're not joyful. Joy requires a lot of cognition and a lot of other things that has to be learned. So anyway... He learned the shame. So one of the techniques that we did was to what evidence does he have of having been honorable in his life? Because it has to, you have to have a, an embodied evidence of what you're looking for. So we, and this is a, done in a contemplative level, not, not relaxation, but a contemplative level. So you can bring information out. Uh, and he remembered that when he was 12, he was a big guy, and this bully was going to beat up this little kid, and he stood up and protected the, the, uh, the, the kid from the bully. And he had never thought about that, and all of a sudden he felt uh, this tremendous sense of pride and honor. I said, okay, first go to the wound, and where do you feel it? And, it, and I touched his hand, it was hot. I mean, he was having inflammation and, and pain. Okay, now take that whole bioinformational field into the hand. I didn't know that it was anti-inflammatory at the time. That's the first time that I found that really it works. So he did it, and by the time we finished, the pain was gone. Two days later, he calls me and he said, "You're not going to believe this. The inflammation is gone." I thought, oh, I, "That's great. I hardly, I, I wasn't sure if that was going to work, but that's pretty good." So interestingly, I talked to him a couple of days ago. This is ten years ago, and now he's seventy. And he's playing the Cuban drums in a heavy metal band. <laughs> and he's still doing the condominiums. <laughs> no problems with the hand. Now, that doesn't happen all the time. These are not, you know, but, but those are examples of what can happen when you use psychoterminology in, in a positive way with the culture components. What a beautiful example. And yes. what an important illustration of 
listening to those scripts that are imposed from the outside, like, oh, you, you, well, you're in your 60s, so, you know, things forget are going to start... Yeah. Fa- forget, exactly, forget it. Forget. You can't play the drums. And um, one of the things you also articulate in your book are these looking at growing older versus cultural aging. I think this is a really poignant example of that. If, what if, I'm wondering if you want to expand upon yes. that at all. Yes, that's a, that's a really important point. Uh, aging, the way that I look at aging, uh, or growing older first, growing older is a passing of time. That's inevitable. Today, you're a day older than you were yesterday. Inevitable. Aging is partly a choice. Aging is what you do with time based on the culture beliefs that you assimilate. That's what aging is. Uh, and depending on... Uh, look at people who retire without meaning. They live on an average four to five years and they get sick on the first year because the brain was made to have meaning. Uh, meaning, purpose, and service. If you don't have those three, there's something missing there and you age a lot faster. And also the, the conception of time, which I'll talk about later in the, in, in, in the other work that I'll be doing. But, but really... Look at it. Number one, what you ask yourself, what portal am I in? Am I in the portal? Because the portals are uh, newborn, infant, child, adolescent, young adult, middle age, and elderly. And those are portals. Those are impositions. Those are cultural impositions on, on biology. Biology doesn't work that way. Uh, why? Because of centenarians that I studied and people that, that don't respond to that. So ask yourself, what portal am I in? Am I in the middle-aged portal? Am I in the uh, elderly portal? Come out of that immediately and begin to look at how you're dressing, how you're acting, and the things you talk about. Centenarians don't like to be around old people because they, said, they say these, these people are contagious. They're old. They could be 30 years younger. All they talk about is their surgery they're having as if they're going to Tahiti, uh, the medication that they're taking, and the pain that they have. They don't want to be around old people. They want to be around young people. And that's the idea. So ask yourself, what is the portal? And how can I look at outliers, people that don't fit into that, that I know, or even actors, actresses, models, it doesn't matter, that don't fit into that, like Jane Fonda, who doesn't fit into being 80, for example, uh, and people like that. Uh, So look at them and see how they live, and you're going to see that they live differently than the way you do in that portal. And then you begin to behave as they do, and your neuromaps maps begin to change. But you have to commit yourself and then be around people that support that, not people that are going to punish it because they'll kill it very, very, very quickly. What else can you say about the centenarians that you've interviewed? What other characteristics or qualities stand out from your time with them? Uh, George Solomon uh, found that he called them healthy narcissists. They're healthy narcissists. Uh, and I'll give you examples. Uh, what, it, what is a pathological narcissist and a healthy narcissist? I was talking to this 102-year-old uh, woman who's really beautiful. Uh, and I said, you know, you're a beautiful woman. She said, yeah, I know. I've always been beautiful. Ever since I was a little girl, I was beautiful. They accept that. They, oh, no. That, uh, cultures will teach you pseudo-humbleness. Oh, no, no, I'm not really beautiful. Another example, it's, it's what I call inclusive narcissism. I went to Cuba to study centenarians. Uh, there are quite a few centenarians, not because of the revolution, but because they were there before that. Uh, and, uh, and this man, they gave him a little cocktail party after the, he's 101. Uh, and there were some women and men, and he comes in, to, and, he comes in and he says to me, uh, have you noticed how the women are looking at me? They love me. They love me. And then he says, 
But you see how beautiful they are? Inclusive. Inclusive narcissism. A sociopath would say, or a narcissist would say, a, a sick narcissist would say, look how beautiful they are. Let's see who I can manipulate tonight. It's not inclusive. They all include. Like compassion is inclusive, narcissism is inclusive. And what you're doing is you're co-authoring greatness. So some, sometimes if I'm, when I'm doing a workshop, somebody will say, oh, that was brilliant. I say, yes, it was. That's really good. And, and they kind of look at me, well, you can only see brilliance if you're brilliant. So what we're doing is we're co-authoring brilliance. And what I test this in, in different cultures. Uh, if you go to the Philippines, I'll ask the, the Filipinos, uh, how many people here are beautiful? And they look around to see if they have permission to say that. How many people are brilliant? They look around. You ask the Germans, and you can't stop them. Okay, it's enough. That's all right. Let's go to something else. So it's cultural. Uh, the culture will, will allow you to say you're a good friend, uh, a good husband, good wife, good partner, but they won't allow you to say you're brilliant or that you're beautiful. Can't say that. Uh, so you, you learn to not accept those things, and also you learn what I call uh, pseudo-humbleness, because it's not real humbleness. You know, it's, it's pseudo. Uh, you, you'll, and, and the little girl learns, or the little boy learns from uh, early. Mommy will say... Um, or she will say to her mom, Mom, look how pretty I look. Look at this little dress. I'm so pretty. No, no, darling. No, no. You never say you're pretty. You wait till you're told you're pretty, and then you deny it. So how are you going to buy into prettiness? And centenarians are that way. They're just, they're, yes, I am beautiful. Thank you. I, what they're saying is, I appreciate the gift you're giving me. Gratitude, which is immunologically, tremendously enhancing to accept that. But if you deny it, then you're denying that person the gift and also you're denying it to yourself and an opportunity to, to validate the self-esteem that I talked about killed. I like your shirt. Oh, this old shirt, yeah. I just, um, I've had it for 10 years. I like your hair. Well, I washed it today. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's never like, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you like my hair. It's really, uh, it is beautiful. You're right. But, no, but mo- the subcultures of wellness will accept that. The other cultures will not. So are you being conceited? Uh, and when they ask, you're conceited? Yes, I am. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you, you have to kind of break their software so they don't have any software to respond. And you see that you're going to outlive those people <laughs> if you do these things. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I, I remember um, kind of bookmarking from your work is just about empathy, centenarians and their relationship with empathy and compassion. I wonder if perhaps you could say a few words about that. Uh, yes, um, what I talk about um, what I call the exalted emotions, which are empathy, magnanimousness, love, compassion, and the exalted uh, or the, the higher cognitions, admiration, uh, honor, um, all these things that are, that are really powerful and that, that evolve. And, and empathy and uh, compassion have to be inclusive. Otherwise, even the Buddhists who are just so compassionate, they say that if you're not compassionate with yourself while you're being compassionate, they call it uh, idiot compassion. And the Zen Buddhists call it grandmother compassion. Not good. You have to include yourself in the compassion, which is a way of creating limits. I can, I can do this for you, but I can't do any further unless it's an emergency. So empathy has to be to be aware of the other person's condition and you put yourself in a place where you can help without hurting yourself. And, and compassion is you become one with that person. 
But one with that person means that you're also compassionate with yourself. That's really my 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 aunt died of uh, colon cancer, and she was a a saint. And you would ask, why would saints have cancer? Well, because you have to wait till you die to be canonized. You have to have set, you have to set limits. She was on the way to the hospital. The ambulance was taken to the hospital. I remember I was driving right behind her to the hospital where I used to work. And she gets to the hospital, and she'll call me. And she said, uh, she's dying. She said, ask the driver if he's had dinner. I'm worried about him. See if he's had dinner. That, that's not compassion. That, that is fear of not being loved. Uh, you have to include yourself in compassion. I know that's not politically correct, but you have to include yourself in the compassion. Uh, in order to maintain your your wellness. Beautifully said, Mario. It's been such a joy to have this time together. Thank you. It's really wonderful to get to know you and your work. And may we all learn to inhabit the present moment with more compassion for ourselves and for one another. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mario. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.